<laughs> Let me say a word of prayer as we dig in. Blessed Lord, we thank you for the hard words of Leviticus. We thank you for the words that challenge us and that lead us to a deeper understanding of your truth and your character, Lord. We pray that you would help us to recognize the, the depths of sin and the punishment that we justly deserve for our turning away from your will. But thank you all the more, Lord, for the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're picking up in chapter 19, continuing from last week. And I want to... I said, um, uh, one moment, please. Um, I was thinking more about, uh, Becky had kind of mentioned in passing last week about the story of Ruth. And, because it has this, this passage, um, or these verses, verse 9 and following. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So just thinking about how cool it is that God so arranged things in order that however many hundreds of years later, I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head, but that Ruth would come along, this Moabite, remember, and she's a stranger, she's a foreigner. There's a lot that Leviticus has to say about that too. That now um, provision is made for her, and then not only that, but then she gets gathered into the line of our Lord Jesus, right? As she uh, marries Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And I think that's just a, a powerful, powerful thing, seeing that providence of God. And also this, just more generally about um, this practice. I was listening to a, a, a podcast about Leviticus, like you do, and um, the, the um, speakers made this point how uh, the people who are able to uh, benefit from this, <clears throat> they participate in it. In other words, it, they don't, it doesn't say gather up the gleanings and then give it to the poor in your land. It says leave them there so that the people are then able to go out and get it. Mm-hmm. And think about how that makes a difference, that they are able to have that sense of dignity of you know, participating in it, not just here's something, you know, Here's, not that there's not a place for that as well. I think there is. But to recognize, ultimately, you want to serve people well, give them an opportunity to participate in those blessings themselves. So just a couple more thoughts on that, but I wonder if you guys had any more um, lingering reflections about that gleaning and Ruth and Boaz or anything along those lines. Yeah, Ann? I um, heard this a long time ago, and I don't know where it comes from. Okay. That God gives every bird its food, but he doesn't throw it into its nest. Oh, God gives every bird its food, but he doesn't throw it into its nest. Yeah. He gives them the opportunity to seek it out, to gain it for themselves, and that's kind of bird life, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Is there gleaning today? Is there gleaning today? Um, yeah, I think there is. Well, Sam was telling us a little bit about that, right? How, how I mean, used to literally be the practice in agricultural counties like Manistee and Benzie County that there would be the gleanings left behind. But I don't know, let's think about this. What are some other kind of modern day gleanings? What does that look like? Yeah, Carla. Um, I think in Traverse, the Traverse area, when they've had excess cherries that they have not been able to sell or because yeah. the price of them is lower than it is to produce them, right. they have opened their, their orchards for people. Okay, yeah, cool. 
So you still very much have that that practice going on. I think uh, farming practices have changed quite a bit. Too. Sure, right. They're very efficient. The machinery. Is, yeah. You know, it just isn't. Gleanings left. There aren't any gleanings left. It's a lot more efficient, and you know maybe you don't want to eat it right off the ground. Maybe you know there's chemicals or what have you. There so. maybe um, trespassing laws. There's trespass. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, yeah. There's an organization in Traverse City that takes some, you know, like fruits and vegetables and stuff that may be a little bit imperfect. Yep. And uh, make them available for people that. Yeah. Otherwise, wouldn't have any. Yeah. Oh. That's it's kind of. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, and similarly, thank you, uh, Margaret, for bringing this in here. A little show and tell. Um, you know, from the Feeding America truck yesterday. So those were essentially kind of gleanings that were already grabbed and then kind of more delivered, although people would come out. It wasn't delivered to your house, I guess. Um, but uh, along those lines, we've got a lot of really green bananas, if you like your bananas green. Presumably they'll turn yellow here sometimes. And potatoes and onions and what were you going to say? I looked online about ripening bananas. Okay, <laughs> well, <laughs> we, can, we can talk about that later. But um, yeah, so we've got bananas, potatoes, onions, carrots. carrots. Um, so feel free to pick up some of those gleanings. But it, it very much is kind of a modern day version of, of this. So anyway. I think it's uh, it's a beautiful thing, and I think it, it speaks very much to um, not only God's heart for the poor, but also how He desires that they would have that that dignity, recognizing that ultimately being part of the the community and having that um, that way to contribute as well. All right. Well, I want to pick up in verse twenty three um, of Leviticus nineteen <clears throat> and read to uh, through verse thirty one. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food. Then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden, forbidden fruit. Interesting. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not... Make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. and So make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. You have a, a kind of a recurring theme through this section and through these injunctions. And I'd summarize it this way. Number one on, on your handout, that trust takes practice. Trust takes practice. With each of these injunctions, they're not just um, kind of arbitrary sorts of commands from God, but he is calling on his people to trust him more deeply and not, um, conversely, not to um, give in to whether it be trusting by the works of their hands or by other religious practices of the day. So what you have here are a series of, if you will, trust falls from the Lord. Remember trust falls? Okay. I'm not going to demonstrate with my brother at the moment here. But, um, <laughs> you don't trust me. Uh, you don't trust me. That's right. Um, okay, so verses 23 to 25 about the trees. Plant your fruit trees, but don't eat their fruit for five years. Okay? I mean, it's inherently an act of faith. And I think in many ways, for farmers, it's still an, an act of faith. 
um, planting and trusting the, the cycle of the seasons and weather and so forth. And it just, it boggles, it boggles my mind. Yeah, yeah. In other words, yeah, is this just best practice? Best practice anyway? Right, yeah. Because in other when we plant new apple trees, we will actually pluck the blossoms uh -huh. off the trees. Yeah. Because if it puts all that energy into the fruit, it will stop the tree from growing. Because right. it takes so much energy. Yeah. So for the first three years, we take the blossoms off so yep. the tree can establish itself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, exactly. Well, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to to mention this, but since um, Sam brought it up. So um, uh, in the first, in verse 23, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Um, and what it literally says in Hebrew is you shall regard it as uncircumcised. That's King James has that. And so it's, it's this kind of um, almost viewing it with that same kind of, of process where then um, you, uh, it, the, the circumcision of the tree um, might be in the, what, in the, the fourth year, I guess? Um, or the, yeah, that's the offering of praise. Um, and then the fifth year, finally, you can, you can eat it. But I think that kind of goes to what you're saying, where it's like that taking of the blossoms is sort of the, the circumcision, in a sense, of the tree, so that ultimately it's able to be more fruitful. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to take us too far afield here. Oh, right, okay. But... <laughs> Our midwife yeah. told me that the eighth day is when your body starts produ starts producing on its right. own vitamin K. Cool. And vitamin K is what clots your blood. Yeah. And you'll need that if you're going to have a little surgery. Oh, okay. There you go. Right? Eighth day? Yes, right. Exactly. Eighth day. Very cool. Um, so, no, it doesn't take us too far afield. And, I mean, I think it's just another, again and again, God has theological reasons, religious reasons for these commands. But he's also, he's the one who made us. And we shouldn't be surprised when it's like, oh, this also is what works best, what goes the with the grain of the universe, as it were. Um, so, yeah, that's both really cool, but also doesn't surprise me in a sense that, that that would be the case. Yeah, yeah. I also think it's interesting that it's not just in one realm that his rules make sense. But yeah. It's, yes this makes sense for food and humans would be inclined to take that. But then it talks about how you handle your daughters, yes. your family members. And it's, if you mishandle that, it's going to go back to the ground. Correct. You know, the land is going to suffer. That's yeah. right. There's that integration. We tend to just disintegrate lives and, you know, view them in these very, or people will talk about a work-life balance or something as though you could just kind of, you know, bracket all these things out. And from God's perspective, it's all viewed in a very integrated whole. And there's consequences um, from one arena or area to, to another. And so, yeah, it says, uh, you know, this would, be, this would be a temptation to view a child, especially a daughter, like you would cattle or something like that. Like, oh, this could just be another cash cow. I mean, this was not uncommon in the ancient world and in some places still today. Like, we're just going to prostitute her out. Like, if we're going to have her and she can't work the fields. Well, she, she needs to start bringing in some money for the family somehow. And so, you know. The oldest, the oldest line of work in the world, they say, right? There's a reason that that, that, that is said, because that's been the practice. So, but God says, have children, but don't leverage them for commercial purposes, okay? It's an act of trust and faith also. Um, 
Likewise, with 26 through 28, when it talks about um, interpreting omens, not even getting a tattoo, again, these are not just arbitrary sorts of things, but these were practices, um, common practices among other pagan religions that surrounded the Israelites. And so to do these things was essentially a way that you could be hedging your bets, right? Where, okay, yes, I'm going to trust in the Lord, but I'm also just going to kind of cover my bases with some of these other gods just in case, right? And there's, we've seen this more than once um, with, with some of the injunctions in Leviticus. The Sabbath, again, we, we just take for granted, you know, everybody's working for the weekend, right? You've got your two days of, of uh, weekend every week, and that's just, well, that's sacrosanct. That's just how it, it always should be. But look, that has not been the case that, uh, and throughout history that cultures have looked at a weekend as just a natural thing. No, in fact, Jews were looked at as being lazy. Like, wait a second, you're going to have a day off? It was more of this sense, like, if you're going to survive, you need to be working all the time. How is it that you're able to have these, these Sabbaths? To practice the Sabbath was to put trust in God. And we see this um, vividly in stories like in Exodus when they were collecting the manna, right? And God says, go out and just collect enough manna for the day, except for on um, Friday, we're gonna, you're going to have a double amount because on the Sabbath, on, on Sat, well, for them was Saturday, you're not going to work. There's not going to be the, the manna for you. Um, it, was, it was a trust fall very much. Um, I think we've, we lose that sense because we're like, well, no, I want to have the days off. But to have the Sabbath, God is very much leading his people to that, that deeper trust. And then finally, in verse 31, you have the necromancers who are going to show up again in verse 20 and the mediums and so forth, these kind of pseudo-spiritualities that people would uh, be tempted to turn to for a deeper sense of certainty, right? So I want to know God's will even more. You might even put it that way. Like, you know, I, the God that I trust is, is the true God, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if I want to get a little bit more certainty, let's see what Miss Cleo has to say, right? Anybody remember Miss Cleo? She's this Jamaican psychic on TV. Anyway, um, we're uh, trying to have this sort of end run in order to derive something that can only become from that can only come from God and His Word and our communion with Him. In other words, that kind of certainty and assurance of of Him. And frankly, many times, like we were mentioning before, about living in that space of discernment and uncertainty. That's it's part of the place of faith. And I think. It's not the worst thing for us sometimes, not always to know exactly what we need to do, exactly how to do it, because then, uh, well, I was going to the library with, with Ellie the other day, and she's getting, I was in my truck, you know, so it's like six feet off the ground, and she's, you know, like this tall, and so <laughs> she wants to get out, and it was just so sweet, but she just looked up at me, and she, I was kind of waiting for her, and she's like, I need help, Daddy. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's, that's what God how God wants us to be toward him, right? To recognize, I need help. I need help, Daddy. Um, so anyway, reflections on this, this call to trust and the fact that trust takes practice, that it's lived out in our everyday, everyday life. You can have all the uh, bank account in the world, largest bank account in the world, all the insurance in the world, but at the end of the day, we still put our trust in God, right? That's, that's where it's at. Um, oh, I was going to ask you know, if you have thoughts on this, but what are some analogous areas of modern life where we're called to, to trust God? Are there things that this uh, brings to mind of, you know, maybe it's not 
You might not be tempted to prostitute your daughters or to go visit necromancers, but are there other kind of uh, analogous areas that you can think of in modern life where we might be called more to trust him? Stock portfolio. Stock portfolio. <laughs> I, need, I need to make it bigger, a larger stock portfolio. Right. Yeah, place those things in, in the hand of the Lord, sure. Other things? Illness. Illness, sure. Um, to trust in I'm the Lord, your healer, and to lean more on, on him. You know, I think we can look at medicine as a gift, but our first reaction ought always to be to turn to God rather than to the medicine cabinet, right? Like, okay, and I try to, I try to practice this with, with our own kids, like, okay, I need an ibuprofen or something like that. Okay, let's pray also, right? Um, recognizing that ultimately we leave this in, in the hand of, of God. So, yeah. Yeah, listen. When we were first thinking about moving up here, uh, that was one of the things, you know, uh, we prayed about it, mm -hmm. and God gave us the property. Right. Somebody said to him, well, how are you going to pay for this? Yeah. I don't know. Right. God gave us the Banks money. want more than that, though. It's so weird. Well, right, <laughs> right. But, I mean, it, it came about, you know, that everything was there when we needed it. Yeah. Yes. So. Exactly right. And it's funny, it's funny, it's kind of sad. Maybe I just speak from my own experience, but perhaps you've had this too, where there are those times, oh God, please answer this prayer, you know, fervently trust him. He answers it, he hears it, he comes through, and then we're like, oh good, and we'll move right along, right? And this is the wisdom of, in the Old Testament, the, the practice of the Ebenezer, right? The Ebenezer, the, the stone of remembrance, where um, God's like, okay, build, build an altar, build something, I mean, this is why we have statues. This is why we, we have these things. But even in our own lives, what does that look like to build those Ebenezers and those little things to recognize how, how and when God has, has come through for us? So I think it's all over the place in our, in our everyday lives. Just because we're modern people doesn't mean that we have squeezed out the need and the places for trust in the Lord. In many ways, it's just moved to different spots. And still he calls on us to, to lean on him. Finally, the last uh, uh, few verses here. It says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. The resonances of verse 18. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There's this call from God for his people throughout the ages to remember that you are resident aliens, so to speak that we all live as exiles. And uh, I, I knew that uh, Pastor Bob probably wasn't going to be here today, but I put this verse in here. I was just going to let him cook if he was here because this is his favorite, favorite verse. Uh, at the beginning of 1 Peter, St. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And what Pastor Newton would, would point out for us is that it's just elect exiles. And again, according to the foreknowledge of God. So both this is who we are, that we are still exiles wherever you are, because this side of our Lord's return, there is no perfect country. There is no perfect homeland. We are all ex exiles, sojourners, aliens, making our way until the coming of Christ. 
And that is in accordance with God's will. Therefore, the Lord says, treat the stranger, treat the alien, treat the outsider as you would be treated by, right? And this is just golden rule again, applied to those who are outside of it. Um, because this is who you were and this is who you still are. Yeah. All right, that's chapter 19. Any uh, uh, lingering thoughts or questions or comments about this chapter? We'll, we'll get started on chapter 20. Well, you're in luck because a lot of this uh, continues to come up, so you'll have more opportunities. <laughs> Let's go to Leviticus chapter 20. And uh, I want to actually start Leviticus 20 by reading a few verses um, from, uh, from the middle here, starting with verse 7. When it says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. There is an important understanding, not just in this chapter, but throughout Leviticus, that with great privilege for the people of God comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. That did not first come from Spider-Man, who said something very similar to this, um, but it comes from the scriptures. There is this uh, um, impression that's getting this, God is trying to stress to us that because I am the Lord, your God. And that pronoun is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Okay? I am your God. You live in relationship with me. This is why, then, I'm calling you to live in this way. These are rules and commandments and stipulations given to you as my covenantal people, as my chosen people. Um, and so you are held to a higher standard and a different standard. Okay? I am the Lord, your God. Um, this is verse from Amos chapter 3, the prophet Amos. God says, you only, speaking to the Israelites, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God says, you are my chosen people. That doesn't mean that you get some special treatment in the sense that, okay, I'm going to let you off the hook. No, in fact, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard because you are my people. First Peter, again, uh, chapter 4, Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And Jesus himself in Luke 12. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What we see in Leviticus is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures, which I think it's so easy for us still today, to fall off on and want to just focus on the world and all the problems of the world out there and all the things that our, our pagan neighbors are doing that are crazy and counter to, to God's purposes. And we should care about those things. And we should strive for the righteousness and the, the peace of the city in which God has placed us. It says in Jeremiah 29, As exiles, seek the shalom of the place where God has put you, at, for in your shalom, in your peace, will be their peace. Um, and yet, there, there tends to be this neglect of within, among our own household. That's the calling, is not for us to just point fingers at the world, but to start with ourselves. You know, as Michael Jackson once said, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change. Anybody want to say that? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that's, where we want, that's where we want to start. Um, rather than just looking out there. 
and I kind of alluded to this in the, in the sermon as well, when we talk about loving your enemies, it's no help to then you know, point fingers at the world and say, well, they're not loving their enemies. You shouldn't expect them to, right? This is the calling of the, the people of God, his elect and chosen people. So for that, just, just kind of, a, I think, a, a statement to have when thinking about this chapter more generally as we go um, deeper into, into chapter 20. All right, let's read the, the first six verses then up to that point. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. All right, there we go. We've got humdinger here. Uh, God's pulling no punches here. When he talks about and wants to make um, utterly uh, impressed upon his people that life is sacred. That life is sacred. Now, what do we know about Moloch? Um, it was mentioned here, and it was mentioned in passing in chapter 18 as well. Uh, not, a, not a ton, okay? He is apparently some sort of demon of the underworld. Like a lot of these, he was a kind of fertility god. And the idea was that you would sacrifice your child to Moloch, perhaps by incinerating him or by other means, um, as a way of appeasing Moloch and so improving the fertility and the prosperity of your community, Okay? Evidently, this had been practiced to some extent among the Israelites even. Otherwise, you know, presumably God wouldn't mention it. We can only hope that it wasn't there too much. But it was this uh, notion that here is the altar that we need to offer up our kids on in order, in order to ensure our fertility and our prosperity. We trust in the Lord, but again, we want to make sure we've got our bases covered. And so, sorry, Johnny. Out you go. Ooh, like, this is really bad. But then you, you read this and you think, well, wait a second. But now God says, well, put them to death. And, you know, uh, these are the people who are, are uh, those who have done that are going to be stoned with stones. And even those who close their eyes when he gives one of his children to Moloch and don't put him to death, then they too are going to be cut off from among the people. So how do we square this sense of on the one hand, God is trying to make clear, taking pains to show his people that life is sacred. But then at the same time, he's like, and oh, by the way, kill that guy who offered his kid up to Moloch. How do we, uh, are we able to uphold both of these, or is God just being schizophrenic here? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, listen. He's trying to get the evil from among them, because if I do one thing, and I'm not punished for it, and up, my neighbors see me doing that. Yes, right. There's, oh, hey, it's okay to do. And it's yeah. like when they uh, went into the land and God said, well, kill all the men and right. boys. Right. Because they're the ones who are going to remember, and as they grow up, they're going to rebel. Yeah, right. 
So it's, it's that mindset, I think. Right, that God, uh, he, he wants to make it unmistakably clear that here's, here's where I stand, that this is, um, to take this life, I mean, this goes to what's called the, the lex talionis, which was uttered um, elsewhere in Leviticus, that um, the sense of, of you, you um, an eye for an eye kind of thing, right? Tooth for a tooth. This is from the scriptures. We say, oh, well, that's so unjust. But the idea is, no, in fact, that's keeping a, a proper um, proportionate justice, recognizing a life has been taken. This is not okay. So even if necessary, then that life is going to be lost. God's drawing a dark red line uh, there and saying, this is how it is. We can only hope that it didn't have to be crossed that often, right? That God's uh, he's, he's putting it out this way precisely so that I, we don't have to do a whole lot of capital punishment in our community. This is not God's desire. I mean, it says in, in, in Ezekiel, he says, I do not desire the death of the wicked. He wants everyone to turn from their sin and live. But he wants to also make unmistakably clear this as the the consequences for this for this sin. So I, I don't think that it's in contradiction, much less that God schizophrenic here. But uh, but it's a stern word. It's a hard word, in order to help us see how clearly how much it is that God upholds and values life. Yeah, man. Well, if I'm understanding it right too, at this time there isn't a king. There isn't some other justice court that Correct. they're going to. This right. is God's law to God's people. They need to do it yeah. and follow it. And I, I am always taken by the fact that it says, if you turn a blind eye yeah. to these people who are doing this, yeah. it's also going to fall in. Correct. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. It's not right. just partaking. It's overlooking the fact that you had a duty to stop this. To your neighbor, right. And um, Paul says something very similar in, in Romans 1, a passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when he talks about all these reasons that um, the wrath of God is being revealed against creation, all the ways that um, its creation is still run amok and people are turning away from, from, uh, from the Lord. And it says in uh, Romans 1, um, though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay. Um, and so there's this sense like, okay, it's not just about, uh, you can't just say, oh, am I my brother's keeper? People will quote that as though that were a good thing. No, that's the opposite. That's a, that's a statement that's made in Genesis um, that we're meant to repudiate. Yeah, you are your brother's keeper. It doesn't mean that you are responsible for his morality, his good or bad decisions, but it does mean that you are to care about your brother and to strive to um, correct one another and lead us into the paths of righteousness. So, um, I mean, when we talk about the, the sacredness of life, it's funny, I, I mentioned Psalm 139 in, in the sermon because it takes this kind of seemingly harsh left turn. But um, if you look at Psalm 139, these are probably familiar words to, uh, to many of you. It's a beautiful psalm, and I don't... Uh, I don't take anything, don't take anything away from it whatsoever. Uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 and following. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet 
There were none of them. It's just this beautiful expression of the sacredness of life it's a picture. from the very beginning. I came across this uh, painting on the internet. Or, Fantastic. Yeah, it's by an artist named Michelle Tripp, entitled mm -hmm. God Knitted. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just beautiful. You see the, um, the knitting hands going and just the, the little child right there. So this is kind of the picture that we get from Psalm 139, God <coughs> knitting that together. Now, we also have to say, as I uh, quoted in the sermon, then you look at verse 21, uh, really, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Interestingly, it says your enemies, right? <clears throat> do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Now I count them my enemies. Okay, but do we leave it there? Then it comes back and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Just side note, this is why the Psalms are so powerful. Because they give voice to the full range of our human experience and human emotions. It doesn't pretend like sometimes we don't want to just curse out and you know, kill our enemies. It gives voice to that. But then it's always leading it back to the praise of God so that we'd be able to say, okay, yeah, this is how I'm really feeling. I, God, don't I hate those who hate you? I hate them with complete hatred. But then to turn and say, now search me and know my heart and see if there's any grievous way in me. Right? I'm not trying to justify my hatred or say that it's okay. Ultimately, I desire to do your will and so I offer it up to you so that I'm able to then love others. Just a side note but just the sacredness of life. And again, um, with uh, Mary encountering Elizabeth, I don't, George, I'm not sure what the, uh, the credit on this one, but. Um, Turn back the other one. I like this one. Yeah, I like that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the picture of Elizabeth and Mary, right? And uh, the baby John the Baptist, you know, I can't read it, his name's, the sign says his name is John. John's already Picasso. He's already, John's already leaping for joy in in the womb. That sense of the, the sacredness of life right there from even before birth. Who's the other guy? Joseph. Joseph, yeah. Joseph, yeah. Joseph, uh, Carpenter. yeah, Carpenter, see? Carpenter. Yeah. Ready to go to work. See how the car hearts on? <coughs> yeah. Um, Not and people well, no, no, okay. no comment. But um, <laughs> People will, will say, um, okay, well, if, um, you know, talking about the sacredness of life and life in the womb, if abortion is wrong, then why doesn't the Bible say anything about it? I think um, God would say, do I need to be even more explicit about this, right? Like, this life is sacred from, from the very beginning. But I also wanted to share this with you because um, not, not a lot of folks are as familiar with um, this very, very early text called the Didache, which is at the latest dated to the second century. Didache means teaching. And this is maybe the, the oldest book outside of the scriptures themselves that were held in high regard um, from the, uh, uh, the early Christian community. And it reads very much like the Sermon on the Mount. But in the Didache, it um, says explicitly there's two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there's a great difference. Now, this is the way of life. The second commandment of the teaching do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not corrupt boys, do not fornicate, do not steal, do not practice magic, 
Do not go in for sorcery. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Um, so I guess I give this to you as a, a, a proof text, for lack of a, a better term. Um, but just to say, yeah, within among the early Christians already, this was recognized. This is not right. Now, you guys are probably familiar with the, the way that in the um, Greek and Roman Empire, the way that infants were often killed, um, it was not by abortion, but usually it was by exposure. You're familiar with this? Where after the child was born, then they would just leave it out on the hillsides outside of town and just leave it to die. And this was another one of those ways where Christians distinguished themselves because Christians were the people who went out afterward and scooped up the children who had been left to die on the hillsides and rescued them and brought them in, raised them as their own. Is there a way in which abortion could be understood as giving one's children to Moloch? Um, Anne asks, is there a way in which abortion could be understood as giving one's kids to Moloch? It's a way of, I mean, yeah. it's a way of hedging your bets. Like, yeah, right. Hey. Right. So, okay, so a couple, couple of thoughts. Um, I think we always want to recognize how we want to be compassionate to those who have, who have had abortions, right? And to, and to recognize that um, there's, there's a sin that has been committed here, but that forgiveness is still, is still possible. For right, exactly. But do I think that abortion is, in a sense, the kind of the modern day Moloch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there, I mean, there's countless reasons that people will practice abortion, but I think in our, in our 21st century America, more often than not, it's because, well, this is, this is not convenient, right? This does not fit my picture of, of life or my, my plans for it. I recognize that it's not always that simple, right? But in the big picture, it's life, life is life. And it's like, is there, am I going to give birth to a life or am I going to, to snuff it out because it doesn't fit? Um, yeah. And so, but I would also hasten to add, it's not the only way that people are still offering their children up to, to Moloch. There's a lot of altars that kids are being sacrificed on today. And as Christians, I think we are called for our own families and for the families of our, our, our churches to say, we want to offer them not on some, some other foreign altar, but on the altar of the Lord, offering them up to him. But, yeah. Whew, all right. Heavy, deep, and real stuff today. Uh, thank you guys for uh, your, your thoughts and your participation. And we'll continue with uh, Leviticus 20 next week.